welcome back to Unleashed at Work and Home. My guest today is Dr. Susan Friedman, who's a psychology professor at Utah State University, which coincidentally is where my son's girlfriend graduated, but I didn't make that connection until after Dominique graduated. Anyway, I've invited Dr. Friedman to come on and talk to us today about being a bold learner because I recently saw her give a presentation where she used that phrase many times, be a bold learner, commit, try it, put something down on paper. That really resonated with me. So welcome, Dr. Friedman. I'm so glad you could join me today. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So you did use that phrase repeatedly. What about that phrase resonates with you? Yeah, I remember the context in which I used it during my presentation was to hopefully set the occasion for the audience to be very bold in asking questions Mm -hmm. because they didn't have a strong history with me from past interactions. And we were only going to be together for a short amount of time. And I wanted them to be confident in getting every single thing from me they wish to get. Mm-hmm. And I realized in the quiet of the room that they might need some extra, uh, some extra prompts and ways to make them comfortable. So I reminded them that they can be bold learners. And by that, what I meant was seize the moment of us being together to the fullest degree, ask questions, give me comments that I can respond to so that they leave the seminar with no regrets of what they should have asked or wish they'd known Mm -hmm. uh, that I could have helped them with. So that was the context in which we were using it. I wanted them to use their behavioral repertoire, (laughs) hand-raising, interrupting, vocalizing, facial expressions of confusion to the fullest so that uh, when we left one another, they had everything that I had to offer. Mm -hmm. And I would be able to get more from them. I think that's genius because so often you see a presenter lecturing and then you might get something like, you know, anyone, any questions or did you all get that? And those kinds of questions put someone in a position of feeling like, oh, everyone else got it, but not me. And maybe I'll look foolish if I ask a question or need clarification or say, but what about? Um, Whereas by you setting it up, I expect you have questions. Of course you have questions. What are your questions? Share them. That was wonderful. I loved that. Well, I'm really glad. Um, One of the things that I often say to audiences, and I know I said it then when we were together too, is we are so reinforced for being knowers, for Mm -hmm. already having information and already having skills and competence that we forget or we're unfamiliar with the idea that mistakes and questions are necessary to building that knowledge, those skills and that competence. So somehow we have to learn to better love mistakes in order to, again, be bold learners, that is to wring out everything there is to learn from every experience for improving what we do in the future. And that, of course, is so resonant to Carol Dweck's work on mindset with the fixed versus growth mindset, where if you have this idea in your head of, you know, I am smart or I am good at this or I am not good at that, you're hesitant to step out of that box because your your brain has created this box around it. And we do get ourselves sort of stuck into these patterns of, I don't really know. And I find for myself, because again, I said this was something that really resonated with me. 
I have inhibited a lot of behavior when I'm in a situation where somebody wants an answer and I think there is a one right and true answer and that's the one they want and so I'm hesitant to do it wrong, even silently to myself on paper. So, you know, at one point you said, okay, now write down your thoughts about this and I now can do that because I finally learned you can commit to a piece of paper. But for years I wouldn't have. For years I would have just waited quietly during that time and other people would have written stuff down but I wouldn't have wanted to commit wrongly because that would have made me uncomfortable that there's a right answer and I don't know it and this is awkward and and terrible and I think that's so limiting for us it's very very limiting it is very limiting and it's a beautiful insight and beautiful growth that you've been able to accomplish what may seem like a small step to people who do it easily Mm -hmm. but it's really a huge step for people who have learned that the only interaction you should offer are ones that you're 100% confident are the correct interaction. Right. And that is very, very limiting is, the, is a great word for it. People will f- often talk about that style of inhibited or shy uh, patterns of behavior as inside the organism, inside people, mm-hmm. as though it's uh, you were born with it. And it is immutable. It can't change like eye color. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, we, we now have a pretty good handle on how genes and brains and personality tendencies are flexible. Everything yes. on the planet, including those uh, correlates to behavior, are flexible. So even if you're born with tendency, the pattern in general of being shy or quiet, that is withholding information, unless you're 100% sure it's correct. Mm -hmm. And even then you might withhold it in a room (laughs) of strangers, because you you project what their expectation of you might be. We now know that it's also very much uh, not only flexible, but also another correlate that's greatly underestimated in our culture is the influence of the environment on that Mm -hmm. pattern. So as a behavior analyst, that's what I focus on the most. And I would assume with with good confidence that in addition to a shy personality style or tendency that you may have been born with, you were also reinforced for withholding information unless you were correct and not reinforced for taking the leap Mm -hmm. that even if it's not correct, your information has value in the pool, the common pool of information between us. Uh, so it's it's great to think about how the environment influences that because, of course, we're not changing the organism. We're not changing right. your genes or brain directly, but we, we have enormous power to change the environment, mm-hmm. to change the signals that say, take that risk mm-hmm. and write that down and to control the reinforcers for doing it. I tell my students all the time, I just started one of my online classes and it was in my opening, my opening welcome was that you, you want to reinforce each other and your clients, not for being correct initially, but for participating at all. Mm -hmm. So you may have noticed when you were observing my teaching style that I was selecting for hand raising, that is praising hand raising, hoping my praise 
or my nodding eye contact and other reinforcers I could make available to my students, I was reinforcing for raising hands, for speaking up, for saying something, and and didn't reinforce correctness until way towards the end of the day when I had already built that relationship, hopefully with many of the students. So those are some of the ways we increase more communication, mm-hmm. you know, in our clients and students. And from a dog trainer perspective, that's something that I have talked to families about forever, you know, that we want to help the dog be willing to do something, to make a mistake, to, to experiment, to explore, because more punitive training was all about suppressing behavior. It doesn't really teach the dog. And we want the dog to be comfortable expressing it. I can totally see when a dog has had prior history with more suppressive techniques. Because they don't want to make the mistake. They don't want to. They're like me, not wanting to write on the paper. They're like, I'll just stand here and do nothing. Because do nothing is better than doing it wrong. That's right. And if we don't put behavior out then consequences can't select with reinforcers to build the right behaviors. Right. So it starts this this um, spiral or downward kind of loop where if I don't behave, I don't get feedback. And by feedback from the environment, it could be naturally occurring feedback, mm-hmm. like how to put my hand to best lock a door, or it can be feedback from a friend or a teacher. So we have to have a lot of behavior in order for reinforces to select for the most effective behaviors or the most efficient behaviors. And you hear dog trainers and other kinds of animal trainers say the best animals to work with are those that have a lot of behaviors. And it's true for humans as well. Mm -hmm. If a human is suppressing their behavioral possibilities, we can't select with reinforcers for better behavior. Yeah, really nicely described on your part. I think it's a very interesting element for us to explore from the perspective of resilience and how we deal with stress. Because so often stress, particularly, I mean, veterinarians, if we're just going to stereotype, are high achievers who've made it through school, getting really good grades and having the answers. And then off we go to the work environment where life gets messy and it's not always easy to have the one right and true answer. So from this perspective of being a bold learner, what are some of the benefits that, that you could see for developing this later in life? Like if, if you weren't a bold learner before, why should you become one now? Yeah, well, and I think that we've, we've already hit on some of that in, in the questions and descriptions you gave and, and some of my responses, the idea that If you aren't a bold learner defined as someone who is withholding information, then reinforcers can't build your contribution. Why it's important to have that leads us to ask then, why is it important to contribute? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're not a bold person withholding information, we can't reinforce the style of interacting where you give a lot of information and you're not contributing then. So we ask, why is it important to contribute? And I just, I think of that idea uh, in that, that meme or that phrase, all of us is smarter than one of us. Mm-hmm. So when the reinforcers are, are following contributions, saying anything, that 
makes it more likely that we're going to hit on enriched solutions or insights. I mean, you will never know how you contribute to my life unless you contribute. Mm-hmm. Right? So if you're quiet, I get a zero possibility of gain. If you take the risk in putting information into that pool, my probability goes up and up and up of you influencing my life. And isn't that what it's really all about? I mean, those that's what we call friendship, colleagueship, mentorship, is the ability to co-influence one another. You know, my background is in science, and so my my um, worldview is not about reaching for the breakthrough or the unique autonomous insight. I've I've been taught that everything I do is the result of standing on the shoulders of the scientists yes. who came before me, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how I, I guess you've given me the insight through your question that that's how I view my contribution as well, is that my contribution isn't really about Susan in any autonomous way, but I'm, I'm the messenger of every influence I've had up to this very moment, including your insightful questions. When you don't risk putting information into that common pool, then your influence on me is minimized. And who would I be without the co-influence of the people around me? Mm-hmm. I mean, I shudder to think of what I wouldn't know and what I could not contribute. If you took away from me, like if you reduced me if you deleted out every part of my knowledge and skills that were due to other people, there would be nothing. <laughs> there would, yes. There yes. would be nothing, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, you know, the, the new finding that there are more cells that make us up that are not human than, than are or something really bizarre like that. We yeah. have more. I'll, I'll look it up. There's something crazy I heard on NPR that there's there's more non-human cells on us like the mites on our eyelashes and mm-hmm. eyebrows and we'll check out what what I'm referring to but again you know if you took away all the things we're not yeah there would be nothing that we are yeah so that's why it's important for you to be a bold learner it's not only about what you gain by allowing reinforcers to select for your contribution but it's a, it's about how you, what you contribute gives me mm-hmm. you know it's a reinforcer for me and adds to my knowledge so we have a responsibility to contribute for the whole being greater than the sum of the parts yes but i understand that it's hard when that's not your style and there are many times where you know we talk about style as though it's a, again a fixed thing but a shy person is not shy 24 7 mm-hmm. and a bold person is not bold 24 7 I think people would characterize me as bold, but that is conditional, like all behavior. There are conditions in which I'm very shy. Put me in the middle of a party, and I will find the corner faster <laughs> than you. And you'll find me there. <laughs> oh my! And I'll be so thankful because then you and I can do one-to-one uh, socializing, which I'm more comfortable with. And then a shy person is not shy 24/7. When they're at their own dinner table, they might be more loquacious or bold, mm-hmm. right? So that's another important point. When we label you something, we are restricting yes. your full range of behavior. Better to resist labeling you as shy 
and reinforce the moments of bold. And better to not label me as bold and then be disappointed when I refuse the invite to your beautiful party <laughs> because mm-hmm. I surely will get the flu if I can avoid it. <laughs> yeah. So if you have a workplace where you are not the supervisor, um, so you don't have control of everything, you just have control of you, what strategies would you suggest for a person to become a bolder learner in an environment where that hasn't always been encouraged? Great question. First, I would say that the supervisor the supervisor doesn't have control of everything either. The supervisor only con- has control of the supervisor. And then we, by consent, whether it's coercion or free choice, you know, truly preference, we consent to the control that the supervisor has. But we could save that for another podcast. Or perhaps the next question. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the question about what can you do to develop the behaviors and skills you wish to see is, first of all, to describe in observable behaviors what that label means to you. Mm-hmm. So if you say, I don't want to be shy anymore, then the first question we always ask in a good behavior analysis and uh, a good design of an intervention is, what do you want to do? So we're going to move that you don't want to be shy anymore to the side. We're going to say, what do you want to do? And if you say, I want to be bolder, then my next question is, what does bolder look like? Mm -hmm. Or Teresa McEwen gave me a new prompt, by bold, I mean, Mm -hmm. by that, I mean. So what does it look like? And by that, I mean, are two great prompts to start the momentum on the path of a great behavior analysis, which is the analysis of the behavior in the conditions, in the context we're talking about, and then a great building of an intervention design. And so you might want to write down uh, the different contexts or conditions, the different environments in which you want to be bolder, and what that looks like behaviorally. So, for example, I have a student now who has carried the label shy all her life in my class. And she's um, listening on the phone. And then after I do my lecture, I turn off, I turn everybody's phone mutes off so we can talk to each other. And her goal was to ask a question during this public open phone forum. Mm-hmm. And she did it beautifully the first week of class. And now we're on week two. So once she feels that she can ask questions in that condition, in that forum, without hesitation, might be our criterion. Mm-hmm. That might include with a calm heart rate, you know, the <laughs> private events that she can report yes. on. Without hesitation, then maybe we'll raise the criteria. From there, maybe it'll be asking two questions, or maybe it'll be asking a question of another student and not me. And then once that's without hesitation, she can decide on what is the next most likely to succeed condition. But that is a little harder, and then go from there. Yeah, And we can build our program in that way. So the key points in changing anyone's behavior is to remove the label, no longer ask what don't you want ask what you do want and then describe the conditions in which you want it 
because changing conditions changes behavior. Pick the easiest condition to succeed and then operationalize, that is describe in observable terms what that behavior looks like. What does bold look like in the condition of open mic during my online class? Mm -hmm. And then you have to also ask, what will the reinforcers be for adult human behavior and children's behavior often too the success of meeting a goal is often enough but it may not be and so you might ask yourself is putting data on the wall a reinforcer seeing your number of questions in the class conditions grow exciting to you there is uh, research that suggests just watching the data improve is a reinforcer. Or might you say, when I ask one question and class is over, I'm going to go get myself a latte right, from my favorite coffee shop, or I'm going to email Susan to say, I did it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so um, it isn't always tangible reinforcers, but you need to have a clear idea of what are those behavior strengthening outcomes going to be. Because behavior has a purpose. Mm -hmm. That's what it's evolved to do, serve a function. We always have to track what is the function of these new behaviors if we expect to strengthen them and maintain them. Yes. And I think the idea that all behavior has a function is something that a lot of people don't think about. So this is occurring and I'm finding it annoying. Well, okay, let's talk about that behavior. Why do you think that behavior is occurring? And we can explore why you think it's annoying also, but let's just talk about why this is occurring because it's serving a purpose for for the individual Absolutely. doing it. And to look at things from that angle really opens up insights because we start changing point of view because we, we, we're so prone to making a story. You are tapping your fingers on the table to drive me crazy because you're a jerk. Or you're tapping your fingers on the table because you're nervous that you have an appointment this afternoon and you're just wondering what, how it's going to go. Those are totally different things. But the behavior is fingers on table <laughs> and we're right. making up all sorts of garbage about it. But if we can start looking at, well, what is the function of this behavior? Why is it occurring? And what is the benefit that the person or animal doing it is getting out of doing this? It's fascinating to see sometimes people are, are just automatically less bothered by the behavior when they can create a different story for it. And right. then if they still want to change the behavior, we're at least starting from a, a more open spot, less judgy, less, you know, you That's are right. so annoying behavior. Yeah, you bring up so many good points and you even use many of the same language that I use to describe it, which is fun and interesting to hear how similar we describe those things, the stories that we tell. You know, we observe something. We might even observe the behavior and environment, you know, relation together. And then how we account for it is the point of debate, mm -hmm. right? So... If you're an ethologist, someone who studies wild behavior of herds of animals, you might account for behavior one way. Or if you're a veterinarian, you may account for behavior with the physiological or structural stuff. But when you're a behavior analyst or a trainer or a teacher, the account you use, the story you use to understand behavior, 
it can be devastating to your student's success or really augmenting of your student's success. Our culture has not taught us that behavior has function in the real world. Mm -hmm. We talk about behavior as inside the animal or the human and serving only internal benefits. Yeah. You do it for yourself. But a science understanding of behavior is much more empowering to behavioral change effort. And that is, I behave in a way that changes the environment that is of benefit to me in some way. And if I can track what that behavior and environmental outcome is, I can understand why I'm doing it, which already makes me a softer person, a more compassionate person. And I can also change the environmental outcomes to to change my behavior. So you're really opening a lot of doors with those descriptions that you gave. Um, and again, this is true for all animals, whether it's a fly or a seal or a child or an adult human, all behavior has evolved to have a purpose, mm -hmm. to change the environment in ways that have value for the behaving organism. That alone is very empowering. So the person drumming the table might be drumming the table uh, because they're trying to distract and annoy you or to get the attention in the room or they might be drumming the table because it dissipates some of that negative energy and arousal they have from, you know, what we would call being nervous yes. or upset. Mm -hmm. What a difference those you know, a difference those accounts make in how we respond to the person. Yes. And then we might be able to say, here's a, a row of beads, right? You could put in your lap and they're quiet. Or Verbally expressing your nervousness can also be very helpful. I mean, it opens the world to ways of helping. Mm -hmm. That labeling the person as a jerk, which, you know, we've been taught to do, it doesn't allow us to have that same level of help or compassion. Right. Which I think is a, a real valuable piece for um, our interpersonal relations, especially at work. When we start finding ourselves in these ruts with certain people, you know, there's there are the people we get along with and the people we don't get along with quite so well and people we get along with and the ones we don't. And often it's some of the stories in our heads, not so much the actual behavior. And so if we can right. kind of stop and think about that, that can help us redirect a little bit of that. Absolutely. There's a book that I recommend often, if that's okay. Sure. Um, Crucial crucial conversations. Mm -hmm. Yes, that is a very good one. I will be sure to put a link to that one in. Yeah. And that one describes with great graphics, simple great graphics that you have the facts of the drumming fingers during a meeting or before an appointment. And then you have the emotion of annoyance. Mm -hmm. And if we track that carefully, we can notice that between the facts and the emotion, we had to tell ourselves a story mm -hmm. that triggered that negative emotion. And so we learn with that insight to stick with the facts, to get curious by asking uh, the person, tell me what purpose the drumming finger serves. Is it making you feel more relaxed? Is it meant to communicate worry? Let's talk about just that. 
without allowing yourself to fill in the story, which really belongs to the finger drumming person, right. not to you. And then once you have their story from the facts, it will trigger more appropriate and helpful emotions like compassion. Mm-hmm. So uh, I highly recommend that account of how we get from facts to emotions and end up in this emotional hole that then becomes very hard for both us and the person Mm -hmm. to get out of. And I think that loops so beautifully back into being a bold learner because it's the curiosity piece. It's not thinking I already know. It's it's saying, what don't I know in this situation? What else could I understand here? And so your curiosity in asking someone to tell you a little bit more what's going on for you. It creates the human connection, but it also solves some of these entrenched patterns where we start making up stories that are not helpful or accurate. Absolutely. When you recognize that, at least a large part of your not bold behavioral repertoire, your shy behavioral repertoire, or risk-averse behavioral repertoire is due to your learning history, Mm -hmm. then you have to offer the generosity that the person who you're calling a jerk is also only reflecting their learning history. Yes. Yeah? And it's a very nice place to come from. You know, it's a nice operationalization, a nice definition of compassion is understanding that you are the result of your learning history. It's not that you're a bad person. It's not there, there, that there are things inside you that prevent you from being more what I wish or need you to be, but that you reflect your learning history and that that's flexible just like our own goals are that are our own behavior due to our own learning history. That idea of getting curious from facts, asking questions, takes a lot of discipline because there are reinforcers in those negative emotions. There are mm-hmm. reinforcers for us when we get annoyed and point fingers. It alleviates us from responsibility of the other person's behavior. And really, it's a lot about blaming and negativity pushed on the other person. But that idea of getting curious before getting cranky (laughs) is a really (laughs) great meme to remember and building your skills to, without attitude, asking questions about why someone is or isn't doing what you expect them to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it leads to a lot of really productive and loving behavior. Yes. And we all need more of that because that fills us back up. I mean, that's right where we need to be is trying to find the the positive emotions in all of this and the connections with other people. Absolutely. And doesn't that address the other interest you shared about burnout Mm -hmm. and fatigue Mm -hmm. in working with animals and their caregivers? Yes. So approaching each other with curiosity is really one of the best ways for people to support one another. You know, just to see how Absolutely. are you? What's going on with you? What's what's going well? What's not going well? How can I help? All of those pieces that we kind of jump in our heads to thinking we already know the answer. Absolutely. And what a beautiful thing it is for our relationship, for you and I to always trust, that is to have the experience from our past history to predict that if I make a mistake, 
you're just going to ask me about it. Mm -hmm. There isn't going to be the account that triggers the negative emotions. I'm going to hold at the fact plus curiosity step in our interaction. And the more I do that with you and you with me, the more I trust that will be how we work together in the future. Yes. Yeah. So that we're more free to give each other feedback. That is critical. Yes. Critical feedback, but without the negativity. That's part of being a bold learner is to be able to learn in an environment where you understand your mistakes are going to be embraced as opportunities to learn something together and not to lose my esteem or my confidence or right. This all works together. And when you get it working that way, people who are fearless, who are not afraid to make mistakes because they're in an environment where mistakes are only opportunities to learn something. And so they're cherished for that. Mm -hmm. You get some really great outcomes on a team. Well, I think that's a beautiful summary. So I think we should just wrap it there because that really summed the concept up very, very well. I do have one question I'd like to ask my guests, and I know you have two dogs, and I like to have a moment of being a little anthropomorphic where I say, if one of your dogs, you can just pick either one, could speak English, and I were to say, tell me a little bit about Susan, what would your dog say? What's your dog's view of you? So interesting. Amazing question. And I'll tell you with honesty, because I'm bold. (laughs) The first thing that came into my mind unfiltered was that they, they would say, I am very consistent. I am very consistent, very predictable uh, with my interactions with them. So that's a funny thing to have come into my mind. Mm -hmm. It's rather plain, but I wanted to share honestly. (laughs) And then when I thought about it a little bit more, I would, I guess they would say, I'm very affectionate. I am constantly, uh, by that I mean, hands on. I'm I'm nibbling literally with my open mouth on their snouts. <laughs> and then I follow that nice three second rule that we talked about when we were together last, the mm-hmm. pat pet pause. Mm-hmm. I'll pause and I move away and sure enough that black lab comes right back in and presses <laughs> against me for me to bite him again. <laughs> so I always say I'm a homo sapien. For that label I mean I need to touch everything with my fingertips and I need to move it closer to my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm sure that they would have those two things in there somewhere. That's awesome. Okay, so if listeners would like to learn more about you and your work, where could they do that? Well, probably the easiest and most fun place is my Facebook page, which is Facebook forward slash behavior works. All one word, behavior works. And if you're listening from the British Isles, you'll want to keep the U out of behavior. (laughs) Because just this week, that was one of the uh, debugging solutions we found, behavior works. And then there I put small videos up of great training or teaching of all species, including children. And then I write a little paragraph about the training and philosophy that behavior works in my work embodies or advocates so that's the most fun and then I have behaviorworks.org and I have about 35 articles lots of fun graphics one of which says unlabel me 
and all sorts of things that your well your listeners are welcome to download and use and distribute disseminate in any way they want everything on behavior works is available to your listeners and there you might find an interest in looking further into my online course living and learning with animals that i teach every august and i have a a special edition of it coming in January because I didn't want to say no to the waitlist people. They were too many. <laughs> so I caved and said, let's do one more. And that's a really good example of the style of shaping bold learners. Mm-hmm. There's a lot in the way that course is run that reflects the things that were important to you that we talked about today. So that, that would be how to get in touch with me anytime. There's a email link on my webpage, behaviorworks.org, and and people are welcome to use that as well. That's terrific. I will make sure all of that is in the show notes so that people have easy access to that. And I really appreciate you coming on to talk to me about being a bold learner today, because I think that there was a lot of application to that phrase, but also the strategies behind it. What does it mean and how can we use it? So I hope that our listeners will feel that they can apply some of this in their own life because that's what it's really all about, isn't it? Actually doing something, being bold and taking action and doing something with what we learn. Doing something in small steps. And I really appreciate the questions you asked because my answers are in large part due to your questions, how you frame your questions. So good job. We were a good team today. We were a good team. Very bold, both of us. (laughs) So it was a lot of fun talking to you today. I really appreciate you coming on Unleashed at Work and Home. Unleashed at Work and Home is all about finding practical, sustainable ways to apply positive psychology to improve the lives of veterinarians, veterinary nurses, and other animal care professionals. Protect yourself from burnout and compassion fatigue by listening to the podcast, participating in a workshop, or scheduling private confidential coaching with me. Details about all of the programs can be found at ColleenPilar.com.